Since 2005, Blue Hat has been where the security research community and Microsoft come together as peers. To debate and discuss, share and challenge, celebrate and learn. On the Blue Hat podcast, join me, Nick Fillingham. And me, Wendy Zanoni, for conversations with researchers, responders and industry leaders, both inside and outside of Microsoft. Working to secure the planet's technology and create a safer world for all. And now, on with the Blue Hat podcast. Welcome to the Blue Hat Podcast, Hiram Anderson and Ramshankar Siva Kumar. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. It's great to see you. Great. Thanks, Thank Nick. you for having us, uh, Nick. I've had the pleasure of meeting both of you in person many times. I've interviewed you on my previous podcast. Uh, this is your first time on the Blue Hat Podcast. Thank you again. I'd love a quick introduction. Hiram, if we could start with you, if you could tell us uh, who you are, a little bit about your background and, and what you're doing. Yeah, so I'm Hiram Anderson, and uh, I'm a distinguished engineer at Robust Intelligence, but have a long and storied history previous with Microsoft and worked with my good friend and colleague, Ram, on this show, doing security of machine learning. And actually, you know, our relationship even predates that as we were collaborating on this very, very topic, I think even three years before I began at Microsoft, or two or three years at least. So that's me. Awesome. We'll dive into that a bit more. And Ram, if you could introduce yourself as well, that'd be great. Yeah, I am super stoked to be here. I'm a data cowboy and Microsoft. I essentially help with the AI red team aspects of what we're doing here. So that means get the fun job of being with really smart people and finding out how adversaries can break machine learning systems. Awesome. And I've been working with Hiram forever. Hiram, you said three years ago, but I feel like our first time we collaborated was all the way back in 2016. Yeah, yeah. It, it was maybe four years before I started at Microsoft. <laughs> yeah. So I know it's been like a decade. Rom knows all my kids' names. Yeah, really. all of them. He knows them all, yeah. Yes. He learned them in just a decade. Good job, Rom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Exactly. <laughs> Okay, before we get completely off the rails, so the topic of today's uh, conversation and why the two of you are joining us is we're going to talk about a book that uh, the two of you have written and launched. It's available now. You can buy it in physical copies in bookshops. You can get it on Amazon. I believe there's a Kindle version. The name of the book is, and I'm going to start with the name because it it confuses me, but it's called Not With A Bug, (laughs) But With A Sticker. And then the subtitle is uh, Attacks on Machine Learning Systems and What to Do About Them. Now, I understand the subtitle, the attacks on machine learning systems and what to do with them. That makes sense to me, but not with a bug, but with a sticker. That's my first question. Help me understand that. Or if you don't want to answer that question, just tell us about the book. Laughing ear to ear, Nick. It's super hard to confuse a smart person like you, so I feel like we've done something right. All right, end of episode. <laughs> yeah, end of episode. Well, can I just can I just say that you're going to find in this book uh, a lot of Rom's passion for classical literature, <laughs> including T.S. Eliot's. So not with a bang, but with a whimper. And then we've changed that. And then there's also lots of references in the book that you'll find. But the actual meaning is that. Because software is moving from traditional software to AI, the kinds of bugs that are there are much more different than what you do to fix a line of code. Instead, these vulnerabilities are exposed visually or with certain inputs that don't make a lot of sense to us as humans, but totally confuse the machine learning. I wondered if what you, and I, 
we're, we're going to cut this out if I'm wrong, because this is either going to sound profound and very intelligent or stupid. But I wondered if what it meant was that in the machine learning AI space, there's no such thing as a bug, or at least the old school concept of a bug doesn't exist. And instead, when you find something that could be a bug, what you do is you put a label on it, or you classify it, and in this sense, a sticker. And then that's you, part of it is you're trying to train people to think a little bit differently about this space. Like, no, 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 it's not a bug. It's got to live there. Now we just put a different label on it. So, so the model knows about it differently. Have I gone too deep too quickly? And am I too wrong? And if so, I'm going to cut this out so I don't sound stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, this is a layer of meaning that Hiram and I did not even like think about, but I think it's a very interesting thread to pull. The sticker reference is actually a commonplace sticker attack, which I want you to kind of imagine, but this is Hiram. This is something very novel in a very deep and philosophical way, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? We're going to keep this in because I, I feel like you're saying I'd said, I said something smart. You did. Oh, my God. Actually, Nick, the story behind the sticker attack, if you're in Seattle, it has Seattle roots. I want you to kind of imagine a really sunny day in Magnuson Park. It's kind of like how the book kind of begins. There's all these people who are kind of like doing their jobs, taking their, you know, taking their dog to dog parks. Magnuson Park is pretty huge. And there's this like person who's holding a stop sign but to you and I, it looks really like a legitimate stop sign. But except for like, you know, a few confused stickers on the stop sign. And he's waiting for his colleague from University of Washington to kind of like drive a car by to see if the car is actually stopping. So this is the allusion to the book title where the car doesn't stop. And the car doesn't stop because not because it has a bug, but because there's a sticker on the stop sign. And the book kind of traces this entire story very much like an Eric Larson, like or like in like a narrative nonfiction, kind of traces why the sticker attack has caught the imagination of the entire academic world to now like policy folks to governments and why people should care about it. But nothing as profound as what you just said. <laughs> so this is a little bit more literal. Like if you think about some of the things that have gone wrong with autonomous driving and computer vision, where the models initially trained on a stop sign is an eight-sided octagon that is red with the word stop on it. And if someone, you know, if it gets old and discolored through dirt and mold or someone puts a sticker on it, and it doesn't match what's in the model, it may not stop. Is that actually more what you're referring to? That's exactly right. And to even go further, the book will outline how the model itself isn't even describing what you said, eight sides in red. It's not explicitly defined, right? And so that is why this sticker confuses it, is because there's these notions that the machine has defined to recognize a stop sign. And it fails when it sees these you know, awkwardly placed stickers on the face of it and recognize it as something else. To add to what Hiram said, it's not, turns out it's just not, you know, we use the stop sign attack as a hook in the book, but it's really any machine learning system that you use that you've used in the past to what is like now the all the rage 
all these systems suffer through these vulnerabilities. And it's not just the stickers, you know, people just say, oh, you know, my machine learning system is not visual, therefore I'm kind of immune to sort of attack. That's really not the case What from what Hiram and I kind of like spoke to researchers and we looked back into it. Turns out any data type, you know, from text to audio to images to actual physical objects that you can kind of print, all of these suffer from these attacks on machine learning systems, which I thought is a very interesting thing. It's not just the sticker attack, but it's kind of a metaphor for all these other ways that ML systems can fail. For some reason, it's bringing up my robot vacuum and how it works fine until a sensor is covered, then it goes crazy. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's bringing up some, some things for me here in my house. I want to take a step back. Before we dive a little bit deeper, if you can give us just some understanding on what the difference is between AI and machine learning, or is there a difference? And does that distinction matter when folks are reading this book? I think... Classically, there has been a difference, but I just want to caveat and say that words are symbols and they're defined by how we use them. And so today, probably the way we use them, they are largely interchangeable. But classically, AI is a field of study about automation, agents that act for themselves. And within that are many kinds of AI, one of which would be machine learning, which is a specific kind of you know, agent that has learned from experience, from data, rather than being explicitly programmed. And so uh, most of the AI you'll see today actually is machine learning. But if you hearken back to our fond memories of Clippy, you know, that also was AI and was not machine learning, right? It was an assistant, an agent that would help you, but it did not learn from input-output pairs in the way we think about AI today. In the book, we, you know, in the very first page, we were allowed one footnote in the entire book. And we use that up to say, in the very first page, we use the words AI and ML interchangeably in the book and in our discourse, because I think splitting hairs would be kind of a very, you know, people people get very religious about the definitions. We're like, we don't want to go there. Yeah. So my understanding before any of this kind of came to fruition, chat GPT, was machine learning was using a data set, and then that's how it was getting its information, and then it was learning based on that, whereas AI was, in my brain, was the singularity, and we all needed Mm. to be very nice Mm. because the singularity was going to come and take over. And (laughs) and so I think I've mentioned this before, but when someone said, what made you get into security? And I said, I want to survive the singularity. I want it to pick me to stay. (laughs) I wanted to save you too, Wendy. And and there I think we don't touch a lot on that concept of security in the book, but I think that's what we call general artificial intelligence, right? Or artificial AGI. So... I think we're more concerned with, uh, in the book, about the security applications of systems we use every day today. Not the future, but your smartwatch, your fridge, your robot vacuum at home, Wendy, and self-driving cars and whatever. It feels like the new frontier. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you, Wendy, for helping us sort of set that foundation of AI versus ML. And I'm actually glad to hear the two of you say that you do use that term sort of interchangeably or sort of colloquially because I do as well. And I think that's sort of what's out there in the zeitgeist. But walk us through the sort of abstract for the book. Like 
who is it for? I think maybe my, my first question, who did you write this book for? And, you know, who's going to be able to sort of, you know, understand it and, and wrap their head around it? And then the second thing is, what are you covering in the book? You know, it's in some ways green space, green field. And so the directions you could go are probably quite broad. So what, who's it for? And, and what, what are you going to find in this book when folks download it and or buy it and read it? I mean, Hiram and I always joke that we wrote it for our friends and family because as first-time authors, nobody else is going to be reading this book. But that cheeky answer aside, it really is meant for a general audience who wants to orient themselves to what is it, you know, everybody uses like ML systems on a daily basis. You're, you know, you're using like Netflix recommendation systems, your retirement accounts are controlled by algorithms or perhaps like driving to work you know, in some sort of like AI-controlled car or you're using Google Maps, which has AI element, it's really inescapable for you to like get out of the AI paradigm. And there's a lot of really important failures that people have already started talking about. You know, how ML systems are biased, how they can lead to unfair outcomes, how they're not explainable. And when Hiram and I, you know, were thinking about this book, we want to really focus on the security aspect of it because as we all know, security is mostly, you know, across the bridge when it comes. But now we've crossed the bridge. We have invited AI to almost every aspect of our lives. And we wanted to tell folks like, hey, you need to be a little bit more cautious about the security aspect of it. So that's the kind of like the general framing. And Hiram, I'd be curious to hear like how you think about what are some of the lessons people should learn from the book. I was going to just bring up that I was at a dinner last night with people in retail, in banking, in media distribution, and they all have, what they have in common is they have teams building solutions for AI. And it struck me just how pervasive this has become in things that you wouldn't normally consider a use of AI, it's probably there behind the scenes. And when we adopt AI, we also adopt the risks that come with this that are maybe less appreciated than they should be. And the security risks that are brought up in the book, I think are gonna, as you read this book, it's gonna help you to kind of be wise about how, if you're a developer of these applications, how are you going to safely step into that water and put something, yes, that's useful? And Ram and I are very optimistic about AI, but also do it in the way that's safe for your consumers and safe for you as a business. So that's from like the, the developer perspective and all those things would apply also for you know a consumer of that technology. We're talking about this is a new area and, and want folks to be aware of the vulnerabilities. Can you give us some examples of what what type of vulnerabilities you are finding the most concerning at this point? Yeah, and Wendy, this is actually a really interesting point because the work, the academic folks have been on a hill screaming their lungs out, hey, ML systems are vulnerable since like 2002. And there's an entire like, you know, we documented the book about the drama from these two academic camps, like, you know, the security researchers don't know what the ML folks are doing and the ML folks don't know what the security researchers are doing. And they all independently find problems with ML systems. And then there's this inflection point that comes in 2016. 
It's really dramatic, I would like to think. There is this guy by the name Christian Skeggity who we interviewed for the book. He's a researcher at Google Brain. And he's like, hey, this is a big problem. But nobody pays attention to him because he's like, you know, working. He finds problems in this neural networks, which is a formulation of ML systems. And nobody actually pays attention to him. And then they drop this paper with a very interesting title called Intriguing Properties of Neural Networks. And boom, the field just explodes. This is like, you know, the canonical panda gets confused as a gibbon by this technical adversarial noise. And there's almost, if you, if you plot the amount of papers that have been published, this is work also done by Nicholas Carlini, another like Google researcher, you can almost see like a hockey stick growth after like 2014, 2015, 2016, there's almost like an inflection point where the number of papers explode. And this is like a hot area of topic. So it's new for traditional security folks, but for the machine learning researchers. It's been a really hot area of research and touches upon so many different types of like weird vulnerabilities. And Hiram, you should talk about some of those vulnerabilities that we wrote in the book. Well, fundamentally, first, AI systems are software systems. So guess what? You get all of those vulnerabilities for free, (laughs) free of charge. (laughs) Yay. But second, there's this whole new class of vulnerabilities. And there are things like your system trained properly on good data by smart people can be fooled. This is the sticker attack that Ram talked about. A good system, a state-of-the-art system. By somebody kind of exploring how to interrogate this system can figure out its bugs without even exp- like looking under the hood. Maybe drive it home with a self-driving car, of course, but also if I'm a like a threat actor trying to get past a credit card fraud detection scheme, or I'm a malware author trying to get past, like, this is what I do. I learn by interrogating this system what it's good at, what it's bad at, and tweak out my my thing being detected, my malware, so that it can evade. This is called an evasion attack, but it's only one, one class. There's all these other classes that come when you try to pollute all the ways that machine learning have been made we call them poisoning attacks or backdoor attacks that allow an attacker, as you would imagine, to cause, these are now causative attacks against the model. I can do something upstream from it being trained so that it will perform in some scenarios in the way that I, as an attacker, would like it to for my gain and my advantage. There's this whole suite of attacks that build now on top of traditional software systems. And what's interesting about them is that unlike a software vulnerability where I can patch it or I can you know, change lines of code, these are bugs that can't be patched. They're bugs that need a replacement or filters or guardrails to help manage and mitigate the risks of those, those bugs in the, the machine learning model. Do you see any future of like a OWASP top 10, but for... AI? There actually is an OWASP top 10 for AI. Is Uh, there? (laughs) They just got released last month, Wendy. So that's maybe why it may be new. Yeah, I need to look this up. This is is awesome. And you know what's a very interesting thing as well? There's all just everybody knows about MITRE ATT&CK, but there's also 
MITRE ATLAS, it's like an, it's an attack framework for AI systems. You know, all the kind of like techniques that Hiram spoke about in gory details. It, the kill chain is kind of laid out for security professionals to understand what does it mean to attack machine learning systems? What are the tactics and what are the techniques? I just looked it up. I can't wait to read this. <laughs> <laughs> and then Ram and Hiram, I, I know both of you have been deeply involved in the creation of adversarial threat matrices and and, and a lot of this uh, sort of thinking about how to go and attack machine learning systems and getting that information out there. How quickly are those frameworks, those matrices, those ideas evolving and are new ones being discovered? So where would you put us on the sort of maturity slider for understanding all the types of threats and classes and of ways to make machine learning AI systems do things they're not meant to, let alone actually sort of go break them and do malicious things? Excellent question. And Hiram has this beautiful graphic in the book, as well as this kind of he talks about, which is actually one of my favorite things that came out of our collaboration. So 15-year-old Jonathan, Hiram, you should tell that story. I really like that. Is this one of Hiram's five children that you've learned their names of? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's a good one. But Hiram, I really like that story, Hiram. Yeah, so... Like before I tell the story, I'll just cut to the chase and say that, I mean, broadly, we understand the families of categories that attackers, how, how they can affect damage. But all the time, there's new techniques, just like in traditional cybersecurity, new ways of making those things happen. And the volume with that is still exploding. But if if I want to like take a step back, I still think we're in the really, really early days Ron brought up this uh, comparison that we make in the book to come with me on a journey back to 1999. Nick, you were still using Netscape. And, and Wendy, How did you know? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> and, and Wendy, you were composing your Word document with a, maybe with the help of Clippy, or maybe Clippy hadn't even come yet, right? Clippy was there. Clippy was there. <laughs> <laughs> Clippy so, was always there. But what wasn't there, what wasn't there at the time is pervasive internet presence by companies. What wasn't there are pervasive threat by nation states that we were tracking. What was there were pranksters, including 15-year-old Jonathan, who hacked into the Department of Defense. And guess why? For fun. And so most of the, like, we like to compare us to being in 1999 in terms of AI security. Most of the things you see today, yes, there are actual attacks in the wild against machine learning systems, but all the sophisticated ones are mostly for fun. They're mostly by researchers demonstrating that can be done for fun and for publication. And uh, of all the ways you characterize attackers today and how they do it, we've seen alleged nation states attacking systems, include machine learning. We've seen it for monetary game, but it's very rudimentary. It's very 1999 in terms of how they're able to make these things work. But that will change. I want to like double down on this comment because I think it's a very underappreciated one. If you want to compromise a modern operating system, the odds of like an adversary, you know, say like Windows or Linux or any of those things, the odds of an adversary trying to do that randomly is one followed by 39 zeros, which Hiram told me is called a duodecillion. 
that's as likely. Correct. Yes, correct. correct. <laughs> I, I have no idea, but if Hiram said so, then that's correct. Actually, our editor told us both. It was it was a silly. And I, I claim no credit. <laughs> but the odds of that happening is the uh, same odds of every molecule of air that I'm sitting. I'm sitting in a big cavernous conference room, kind of congregating in one corner and suffocating me. That's how likely it is for an attacker to randomly compromise a modern operating system. It turns out that the odds of compromising a machine learning system is one in two, which means that before you start like an op, you can toss a flip a coin. If it lands head, you are most likely going to compromise it. And the reason why we are in this golden age of like cryptography, but in the stone age of machine learning security is because we are in the 1990s of this problem. We have not thought through And this machine learning has never been thought through from a security perspective. And the fact that now we're putting them all in these really important applications deserves kind of a pause and thinking, okay, how do we make sure we are abating this risk? And this is work done by a big shout out to... David Evans. Yes. Evans from like University of Virginia. So big shout out to him for like helping us come up with the calculations. But it is a very startling figure that if you can compromise that machine learning system with the odds of one and two. I want to come back to that question because before we go any further, I want to sort of give audiences the opportunity to hear from you about, you know, you could potentially listen to the last 30 odd minutes of this conversation and think like, oh, wow, we're on a downhill slope here. This all sounds bad and negative and we're in our infancy and it's 1999 and and Jonathan's hacked the Pentagon and he's letting, you know, he whatever, right? Like it sounds sort of like chaos and doom and gloom. And in fact, I looked at the Amazon reviews for the book and there's only one negative one. And I wanted to (laughs) read you a section from it because I think this reviewer, with all love and respect to this person, made a a mistake and, and really sort of didn't understand the book because this person says, in summary, after reading this, it can be said that AI is virtually impossible to defend or if so, then at the price that AI is of nothing or little use. So what do the authors suggest? risk management. And I think that's a really negative perception that is out there with some people, but I don't think that's your I don't think that's either of your perception of this industry and I don't think it's what your book is trying to say. So like tell us, is it doom and gloom or are we actually on a really exciting sort of place here where we have the opportunity to get out in front and there are a lot of great researchers, one you just mentioned there, who are getting ahead of this stuff and thinking about it and putting us on the right foot. Nick, you hit the nail on the head. As Hiram was starting off the podcast, we are inherently optimistic people. I don't think I, Hiram and I only see rainbows for the most part because we wear like tinted glasses. I also think, Ram, you are one of the most optimistic people I've ever met, not just Agreed. about AI and ML, <laughs> but just about life. So the fact that you're in this space actually gives me hope. Please keep, keep going. No, but you're so kind. The first thing to just be really excited for is we have some of the smartest people working in this area, not just in academia, but in actual industry. Like there is now red teams in like Google and NVIDIA and Facebook. Like every organization is prioritizing and thinking about securing machine learning systems. If you look at, you know, all the responsible AI principles that came out, security and privacy is like, bang in the middle. In fact, 
when the U.S. Senate kind of like came up with some draft principles, they call it the SAFE framework, and the S in that stands for security. People are really prioritizing security. This is not like, oh, we're throwing hands up in the air. The analogy that Hiram and I use in the book, which will resonate with every security person, is defense in depth, right? You know, during COVID times, we were asked to wear masks. We were asked to wash our hands. We were asked to social distance. With each one of them may not, you know, offer full protections against, say, the COVID virus, but together they offer substantial protection. And that's the message of what Hiram and I were trying to land in the book is, you know, you've got these technical measures and yes, each one of them may not hold up, but together they offer a good vital defense. But then you've also got policy levers that people are pulling down on. And then you've got industry stepping up and then you've got academia already racing, you know, in terms of uh, research. So if anything you should take away from this book is that really smart people are looking into this problem and that gives us all a lot of hope. I want to, forgive me, take us again back to 1999 and think like, given that you know Jonathan has hacked the DOD, does that stop you from going to Amazon.com and, and shopping like, you know, or whatever? No, it doesn't. There's something axiomatic about the fact that good products co-develop with security, pen testing, and security vulnerabilities that are discovered along the way. We only make them secure because we discover them. So this is very much a journey. The reviewer is not wrong that we do believe that a right path for this is a risk management framework and mindset that anticipates that vulnerabilities come and we adapt with them. That is really like the only way for security, be it AI or otherwise, to stay in the right way. That's a really uh, good distinction. Thank you, Hiram, for clarifying that. So the answer is risk management and risk mitigation, but the end result isn't you know, a useless tool. It actually is a more useful and safer and more empowering and more accessible tool because those risks, those threats, they have been thought about. And hopefully with some of the information like that you talk about in the book and the work that researchers and academics are doing, they're going to get ahead of them. And so these systems that will be built in the future are going to be safer and more secure. Exactly. Can I just add even one thought is that in, Please. Uh, in many of the interviews that we did, especially with people surrounding the National Security Commission on AI, which was this um, congressionally sponsored think tank to understand how we embrace AI as a competitive advantage against, you know, geopolitical adversaries or political adversaries to the United States. And one thing that I think struck me from these interviews is that our, now, now I'm speaking as United States, but from their perspective, it's our advantage in AI might just be that we're going to do it safely and securely and responsibly, right? Like we might not get there faster or we, we are there, we're ahead, right? But of all that, we definitely have a leg up when we're kind of embracing this holistic, healthy AI development together. So th there's a lot there that is a, it's a good thing to think about these things up front, not a bad thing. I am an avid user of Anything that I can find that integrates AI into your everyday tools. I mean, ChatGPT, love it. 
I used to spend a lot of time on TikTok. Now I just talk with ChatGPT <laughs> on so many things. So I love, uh, I feel like I should be getting some sort of, you know, promotional <laughs> response to how much <laughs> I am pushing that, that there, it's beyond using it for technology. I mean, I have conversations with the tool on a recipe that I'm making. You know, it says mm-hmm. don't overmix. I ask, what does that mean, overmix? Can you tell me? So my point is, is that this could be, utilized in every aspect of life for everyone. And to know that there are so many intelligent folks, such as yourself, that are looking into it and not just saying, hey, this is a scary thing, let's not use it. It's let's all work together, find these vulnerabilities, figure out the risks so that we all can improve our lives with the the machine learning, the AI options that are out there. But as I kind of dive into the other part of this with your book is that you all are giving 100% of proceeds to charities. And can you give us a little bit of insight into what charities you chose? Why? You know, we'd love to hear about that. For sure. Ram and I have two charities that we care a lot about. I could let Ram talk about both of them. I'll name them. The first is called Black and AI. And the second is called Bountiful Children's Foundation. Black and AI is about empowering folks that don't have traditionally a lot of access to excel in education, giving that opportunity to, to more people. And Bountiful Children is a zero-cost overhead child malnutrition, which also, believe it or not, is the number one inhibitor for educational access in the world. So if, if there's a theme, it's giving a leg up to those who maybe need more access to become contributors to this field of AI. Ram. Ram has some really cool stats I, that I don't, I don't remember, and I'm hoping he'll say them live. Oh, man. I was blown away when I learned that in 2019, out of all the CSPHD students who graduated in the United States, there were like 1,500 or so of them, only 13 of them identified as Black, and that kind of, you know, blew my mind away. And there's this amazing organization, Black and AI, which Hiram mentioned, has been really advocating for empowering Black and marginalized people to enter computer science, and especially machine learning. And Hiram and I, you know, when we spoke about this, we really wanted to ensure that we're thinking about security and safety of, of, of systems, but with a capital S, safety, if we want to build those sort of systems, we need to embrace diverse perspectives. So that's how we got Black and AI. And Hiram kind of like mentioned this, but it's another interesting example of we are teaching a lot of machine learning systems to learn, but like Hiram said, the number one cause for kids to not learn is hunger. And that also resonated so deeply with us. That breaks my heart. But I love it. I love what you both are doing. That is, and thank you for bringing attention to these charities because I had not heard of them. And now the listeners are hearing about them and maybe we could do a little bit more to help them out. Absolutely. Every, Amazing. All our royalties that we receive for the book and all future royalties that we will receive by selling these books go directly. 50% of them goes to Black and AI and the other 50% goes to Bountiful Children. That's amazing. So... Not only will you educate yourself and anyone that you care to share what you've learned from the book, but obviously supporting two great causes. That's uh, con- congratulations to both of you. That's amazing to do. You know, such a gift. 
I wondered if you could share a little bit about how, just sort of how the book came to be. Like the two of you have known each other and worked each other for over a, a decade, almost a decade. Were you sitting in a coffee shop together after, you know, a presentation or you, you, you listened to a talk at a conference? Because I think a lot of us have had that moment with a friend or friends, maybe some frivolity was happening and they're like, we should write a book. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a story for how, how the two of you decided, yep, we're doing this thing? Nick, there's, there's only one true narrative to this that I'm going to tell you. Yes. And that's the only true one. This, this book is Ram's passion. And he came to me and said, Hiram, we have a great relationship. We've worked for years together before Microsoft. And then during Microsoft, Hiram, I want to write a book. I want you to join me. My inside voice said, no, no, too much work. But I just love working with Ram and agreed to partner. And along the way, I will be honest, I got cold feet many times because it is a lot of work to write a book. But Ram is just super passionate, perseverant, and I'm just so delighted how this has turned out. But was this at like Taco Bell at 3 a.m. on a Tuesday? Like, wh- wh- where did that conversation <laughs> take place? I want, I want to paint the picture. Well, it's, it's, not, it's not romantic. It's like a team's call, right, Ron? <laughs> yeah, it was, so it was kind of interesting because I would not have written this book with anybody else. I start, you know, in 2018, I was almost burned out from Microsoft. And I'm like, hey, guys, I'm going to take this, like, sabbatical, and I'm going to go spend some time. So I was an affiliate at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard, and I was like, this is back in 2019. And I was like, you know, I knew at that time I was working on adversarial machine learning. And I was like, okay, I'm going to write a textbook on adversarial machine learning. And then write, 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 some, you know, outline some things. And then I met this amazing person called Kendra Albert. They uh, they go by they, them, they're a lawyer at Harvard Law School. And I was talking to them about the book project and they were like, hey, what are the civil liberty implications of attacking machine learning systems? You know, what does it mean for society to, you know, when it, when it has systems that are insecure? And I was like blown away by this. It's like, what are you talking about? I'm a researcher. What are you talking about? Nobody talks about these sort of things. So the book kind of like went on a hiatus and then I collaborated with them very closely and a whole bunch of others to kind of look at what does it mean for a CISO to think about this topic? What does it mean for a policymaker to think about this topic? What does it mean for my dad who runs a business? What does it mean for him to think about this sort of topic? All centered on adversarial machine learning. And 2020 is when Hiram joins Microsoft and you know, if there's one thing that you would know about Hiram is that he's the most generous collaborator and also the sharpest mind in this like area. He's written some of the most foundational work on this area. And I was like, oh man, I am going to pitch this book that has been on hiatus. And this was just when the pandemic was raging, by the way. We were all seeking our purpose. I was like, I'm going to resurrect this book project. This is going to be my pandemic sourdough. And that's how it's like, <laughs> hey, Hiram, save me from this to kind of like get there. And, and it is true. We, I think a lot about Ezra Pound and for a lot of various different reasons. And he kind of edits T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, 
the poem. And T.S. Eliot dedicates that poem, this like really important modern poetry to, to Ezra Pound. And he calls Ezra Pound the better craftsperson. And that's how I think about Hiram. Like we wrote this book, you know, to get ourselves, to get some purpose during the pandemic. And we got this really cool like job of going and talking to so many different people who otherwise would not have spoken to us. Like, you know, all the way from folks from, you know, our peers in Google to peers in like other parts of industry to just like folks who work in the DOD who would not have generally spoken to us if we weren't writing this book. So we gained from this, I personally gained purpose. I would like to think Hiram and I gained a lot of different perspectives, too much more than what we can fit into the book. We have a separate word document called Cutting Room Floor where Hiram and I cut most of the parts of the book. And that by itself is like 85 pages. So it's liner notes of the book, which we think is because it's such an expansive topic. And when and right when we handed this book in October 2022, <laughs> Chad GPT burst into the scene. And that was a very interesting era as well. So all this to say, this book is a praise note to all the important folks who have been doing this work for so long has been like, we need folks like Hiram who can kind of rein this topic in and disseminate it to a whole bunch of people. So that's kind of like the longer answer. I love the sourdough reference. I admit I bought everything to make it, never made it, not even once. I was like, <laughs> you know, Wendy, the funny thing is when I was trying to make the sourdough, Everybody was telling me there's such a yeast shortage and they were looking at supermarket stores. But I was there going to my Indian store and they had packets of yeast, packets and packets of it. So another call to the Indian store next to next to my house. I thought the whole thing about sourdough is that you were like <laughs> leveraging the yeast spores in the air. Like you were just like making the dough and sit on the counter and doesn't it, isn't it, isn't, I thought that was how it started. No? <laughs> you can. You can, but you can also buy yeast and just, it depends you on your environment, kick start I guess. Process. I never made it past the starter. I was like, I cannot take care of this thing. This needs too much attention. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I'll get a dog instead. Speaking of bread, Hiram makes the best bread, which I, you know, which I will go and purloin and taste in his house one day, but yes. <laughs> was this a pandemic thing that you took up, Hiram, or had you been making bread for a while? Do you know what? My pandemic hobby actually you make was cheese, making you? raw cheese. Chuck yeah. cheese from raw milk. That's right. Nick, great memory. I, I think I still owe you. I still owe you some, you know, aged Gouda. Hiram, if I had a dollar for every person that owes me cheese. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I was recalling that from when, when you came on the Security Unlocked podcast and we, we talked about uh, making cheese. But so did you pick up bread as well or that was a pandemic? Do you know, actually, I, I've got to deflect. I, I think Ram's attributing the delicious bread it actually comes from my wife, Nicole, who is an amazing ah. bread maker. I am an amazing bread eater, though, and I'll give you that. I am an amazing bread eater. Yeah, Hiram's wife, Nicole, who I'm also great friends with, she not only is a great athlete and an accomplished like, nutritionist, but she also does these amazing things of like, baking. And when you talk to her, she's like, yeah, I just smell my own flour. I'm like, what <laughs> are you talking about? It's just such the most humble and kind person you'll ever get to meet. That in is fact, true. From our book launch in Portland, it was my family. My parents had come over, and then Hiram's family. We were all hanging out together. In fact, the very first, like, Hiram, what do you call it? The moderator for our book talk was Hiram's 
kid, my best friend, my BFF. Yes. Now 12-year-old Grant was our <laughs> moderator in Portland and introduced Rom and asked the questions. And it was amazing. I have a fun question. Well, I don't know. Actually, cheese and bread was pretty darn fun. And Hiram, I have to say, you, you reminded me I did also buy a cheese making kit and never never used it. Never. So no bread, no cheese. I failed. Maybe each episode, Wendy, we can we can go through the things that we bought during the pandemic and haven't touched. I still see it, but I've never used it. I don't think either of you are feeling the urge to write a book again anytime soon, but let's just pretend you are. If you were going to write a fiction book... What would each of you write about? Hyron, we'll start with you. Oh man, fiction is like my least read genre. Uh, and, and that's totally honest. Like my two sources of books are historical books that I love and, and then Harry Potter that I listen to because my kids are in the car with me. So that, that's kind of it. But I, I think I would like to write, you know, if, if you make me choose fiction, Wendy, it would be in a genre of maybe, you know, sci-fi or fantasy and it would involve like a humble young engineer saving the day. That you know, that kind of that the unsung hero would be, would be the the awkward engineer. That's what I choose. Thwarting a uh, adversarial machine <laughs> learning attack. Exactly. Machine learning attack by mixed with a dragon and a spell or something. Nice. Some, all, all that together. In 1999. Oh. In 1999. <laughs> <laughs> Rom, you got a fictional book inside of you somewhere? Okay, I've thought about this a lot. Um, <laughs> And this is this should come as no surprise to anybody who knows me. So I'm a huge fan of John Milton. In fact, I would I would like to think I'm a Miltonist, but that's a topic for a different day. Miltonite? You know, I've been I was reading John Milton's like Paradise Lost. The Satan comes across, Satan is kind of like the biggest hero, the anti-hero. He's got the juiciest dialogues, God and the Son, and everybody else got the boring one. He's got like, oh yeah, let's rebel. And I always thought it would be great to have, you know, the Satan from Paradise Lost in a queer fiction where he falls in love with Abdiel, who defects from his army and joins God's army. So I, I always thought if I would ever write a fiction, and if if any of the publishers want to invest in, like, 17th century poetry and, you know, marrying queer fiction, contact me, it's like... That's that's what I'm going to do next. Not not next. Please not write, this book. I, I'm, I'm Please write this book. I'm in. I, I, I want to read this book. Yeah, it's forbidden love is what I call itself because it's got Satan and Abdiel, and then it's set in like this universe right before the fall happens. How about that? Forbidden love. I wonder if a, a listener could uh, fire up their their GPT of choice and uh, throw that prompt in there and see what <laughs> yeah, comes out. <laughs> Well, we are at time. You two have been incredibly generous to come and join us on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for uh, answering our crazy questions and delving into the worlds of cheese and yeast and, and everything in between. Before we do let you go, where can listeners find you online or go to learn more about the book? We will put the link in the show notes. And I think if you just go into Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your online bookstore and search for the title, which is not with a bug, but with a sticker. Correct. Did I get that right? It'll pop up. But Hiram, where can we find you online? And then uh, Ram, if you can give us some URLs as well, that'd be great. Find me on, on Twitter at Dr. Hiram or on LinkedIn are my two social media platforms that I'm doing. I'd be delighted to chat with you and move conversation to other media if that works for you. Yeah, and you can find 
me at rom-shunker.com. It's got links to my Twitter, my LinkedIn. And also, I should have a new section on queer fiction soon, if all goes well. If your listeners reach out to me. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I hope we get to speak to you both on the Blue Hat podcast again very, very soon. You are welcome back anytime. And I'm sure we have only just barely scratched the surface on this topic and and many more. But thank you for your time. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for donating the proceeds to charity. All the best. And we will talk to you again on another episode of the Blue Hat podcast. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you, you, Wendy and Nick. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the Blue Hat podcast. If you have feedback, topic requests, or questions about this episode, please email us at bluehat at microsoft.com or message us on Twitter at MSFTBlueHat. Be sure to subscribe for more conversations and insights from security researchers and responders across the industry by visiting bluehatpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.